0: ago, in which they began to investigate, they wanted to find out, why is it that some churches grow? What is it that causes churches to grow? But more than that, they really wanted to investigate why it is that some churches grow and others are dying. Why is there some churches that are flourishing, others are floundering? Why is there some churches that go forward, why other churches cease to exist? And so they randomly picked out across the United States, 39 congregational bodies. 39 groups of believers that came together to worship. Regardless of denomination, regardless of location, regardless of background, regardless of history, just 39 random groups. And they started studying them. And they came up with what they called a 1 to 100 quotia. churches that have scored above a certain point and below a certain point, the churches were growing or shrinking. And they found out from these 39 churches that there were there was a specific common denominator, an element that caused some churches to grow while other churches ceased to exist. And they found out that common denominator. In fact, of the churches they studied, there were 13 that were growing and there were 19 that were dying. And the 13 that that were growing all scored 65 or above in this one area. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Those churches that were growing had a greater atmosphere of love among the members and toward those from outside. We could have saved them a lot of money. Because Jesus says in John chapter 11, the very thing they said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one toward another. It is a common denominator that causes Christians to be Christians the love that we have for each other and that we have toward those that are without. Our love. So I wanna ask a question this morning, an important question. How do we grow a loving church? Because if the key to church is growing, if it's a great commandment that the Lord gave, if it's that mark that binds us together, how do we cause that to happen in a congregation? How do we grow a loving church? And thankfully have the answer from the Bible. If you have your Bibles this morning or a device with it on, i ask you to open to Romans. We're going to chapter 12 in just a few minutes. I'm going to ask you something unusual today. I'm going to ask you if you've got your phone or your device with you, unless you're dealing with national security matters or highly sensitive information to close all of your applications that might cause you to not pay attention to what we're going to study together from God's Word. What we do here matters. What we do today is essential. And so I ask for your attention as we look into the Word of God. Jess said, if you get Romans, God gets you. And I want God to get me, so I want to get Romans. So let's study the book of Romans this morning. The key verse is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans can be outlined with three very direct movements. The first one would be sin and separation. That's Romans chapter 1 through 3. The second could be salvation and sanctification. That's Romans chapter uh, 3 or chapter 4 through chapter 12 and verse 9 or verse 8. And the final section would be service and servanthood. And that's chapter 12 verse 9 through chapter 16. it interesting, any preacher can outline anything with three points. Paul gives three direct points of how, of what he wants us to be. I would remind us that all good doctrine precedes good doing. That we need to know what to do before we know how to live. And so the first nine chapters, excuse me, the first twelve chapters, he deals with how we ought to live. With what we ought to do for God. With the direction of our life. It deals with good doctrine. Some have called the book of Romans Paul's systematic theology. Well, he starts off in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He really starts out with the end. He says in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There are three I am's in Romans chapter 1. The, I am a debtor, I am not ashamed, and I am ready. But here he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. And then he introduces us to two groups of people, the unrighteous and the ungodly. Our one friend of mine called them the wicked and the wicked wicked. He first calls his attention to wicked people. Most folks reading a Bible in the first century would have thought the wicked people were the, Gentile, the wicked wicked people were the Gentile people, the wicked people were the Jewish people. But Paul calls the wicked people the Gentile people. And he says to them, you were without excuse. He says to them, you should have known of God. But instead of being thankful for God, instead of praising God, instead of glorifying God, you began to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. The Creator, who all glory and praise is to be to, you focused on the creature. They became, he says, humanists in their approach. They began to think it was all about them, all about mankind, all about what man was supposed to be, and none about God. Every once in a while, someone will ask me as a minister, Why did God just deal with Jewish people? What happened with the Gentile people before Jesus came? What about all the other nations? And the truth is, Paul deals with this in Romans 1. God had a law for everyone, not just the Jewish people. The Old Testament is a story of God bringing Jesus in the world and the people he brought him through. Every once in a while in the Old Testament, the curtain will be pulled back and we'll get to look in upon a life... Of a man like a Balaam or Nebuchadnezzar or, or Naam and some Gentile person who really was a lover of God. But he says to these Gentile people, "You're without excuse. You should have known about me." I heard a preacher one time say, "Everything we should know about God is revealed in the pages of God's word. That's not really a true statement. When God wants to speak to us with authority, He speaks to us through His Word. But the psalmist is clear in Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Heavens show His glory. The firmament shows His work. Day and today, utter speech. Night and tonight shows knowledge. There is no language where His voice has not been heard. God's voice is everywhere, and God expects everyone to hear it. But instead, these Gentile people began to worship and serve the creatures to the Creator. And they began to live lives that were completely apart and separated from God. So much so, that they began to practice all sorts of deviant sin. One guy said that Romans chapter 1 can read like the front page of any large city newspaper in America today. And he talks about sins like homosexuality that we read about and see so much talked about in our culture today. And I want you to notice what he says to believers in that section. He says not only the last verse of Romans chapter 1, not only are those people who practice these things guilty, but those people who approve them. Folks, we as Christians cannot sit back and watch the world go to hell in a handbasket. We cannot sit aside and say, you know, people, if they want to live that way, they love live that way. I'm going to sit in my little cubicle and I'm not going to disturb them. We have a right and an obligation, a responsibility to be people who speak into this world truth. Amen. That's Romans chapter 1. And every time I read Romans chapter one, I, I picture some self-righteous, pharisaical Jewish person sitting there with his arms folded and his, his legs crossed and saying to Paul, Man, Paul, you preach that sermon to those Gentile people. They need to hear that. I mean, they are so wicked. They are so unrighteous. Preach to them, Paul. Well, what I've learned from a long time of preaching is people like your preaching as long as it doesn't get personal. Paul gets real personal in Romans chapter two. And he says to the Jewish world, you are without excuse. You were given every advantage. Every advantage that God could possibly give came your way. But instead of it causing you to praise God and worship Him, you used it instead to practice sin. He said you're without excuse. You judge others, but you're practicing the very same things that you're judging them for. You took the grace of God and instead of exalting in it, you despised it and you became even more wicked. The wicked, wicked people were the Jew- Jewish people who took the word of God and crucified the Son of God. Romans chapter 3 would be the saddest book in all, the saddest verse in all of history if it ended there. Because Romans 3 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Read on. There is none righteous, no, not one. Everyone seeks their own way. No one is seeking the things of God. We're all sinners. How horrible it would be if Romans ended in chapter 3. But in chapter 4, thankful are introduced to a man and a concept. The man is the man Abraham. And the concept is a concept of faith. And three times the Bible will tell us, here in the book of Romans, that Abraham believed God. And was counted to Him for righteousness. What a beautiful concept. Belief that accounts to righteousness. When you come to chapter 5, we're introduced to three words. Mercy, grace, and peace. And we're told all three of those things come from the same source. They come from Jesus Christ. Christ has kind of exited the book of Romans in those first four chapters. But He shows up again in chapter 5 in a powerful way. And He talks about the grace of God. Look quickly at Romans 5, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. In verse 6 he says, Paul, while we were yet sinners. In verse 8 he will say that while we were apart. And in verse 10 he will say, or we were wicked. In verse 10 he will say while we were enemies. And the remedy of being an enemy of God, or being wicked, or being a sinner, being separated from God... In all three of those verses, is Jesus Christ Himself. Then He talks about the grace of God and how powerful and marvelous and wonderful the grace of God is. And we must never, we must never minimize the grace of God. In fact, He talks about it so beautifully in Romans chapter 5 that if we get to Romans 6, He asks this question Should we sin more? Listen to it. What shall we say then? Shall, then? shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if, if my sin highlights God's grace, maybe I should sin more because it makes God's grace more beautiful. But then he answers it. God forbid. How should we that have died to sin and live any longer therein? And then in a sermon about Theology and salvation and sin and sanctification and grace without exception or without expectation he enters into a course of talking about baptism. For anyone that thinks baptism is not significant or essential or important here is how important it is. In this lofty discussion about man being separated from God not a book about baptism he enters into that discussion. Or do you not know, he says, that as many of us who have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, we imitate the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ in our baptism, he will say. And he says, not only should we not live lives of sin, but down around verse 23 he'll say, we should not even strive to practice one sin in our life. We all have them. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll talk about it as a besetting sin. It's that sin in your life that seems to keep coming up time and time again. You thought you conquered it but came back. The danger is that eventually, if we're not careful, we begin to think that we deserve that sin. We have a right to it, and we kind of keep it to the side as if it's some sort of pet sin. Paul says we shouldn't even live a life not just of practicing sin, but of committing any sin in our life. We should totally avoid sin. And wouldn't that be a marvelous and great concept? Romans 7, though, is so helpful, because Romans 7, when I was a child, I used to not understand it. It was the hardest chapter in all the Bible for me. As a child, Paul says something that's kind of a tongue twister listen to him. He says, the good that I don't want to do is I do, I don't do, but the evil that I w- don't want to do, I do. <laughs> while I'd misunderstood it as a child, as a person trying to live Romans 6, a life of no sin, I truly understand it as an adult. I keep finding myself in to the sin I thought I'd given up. I wake up with a plan to do right, but before too long I find myself not doing it. I have intentions of doing things for God, and I find myself doing other things instead. And Paul shouts out as he closes Romans chapter seven: "O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? I heard an old preacher one time say Paul was talking about his life before he became a Christian. But I looked at the tense in the Greek, and he is not. He's talking about the life he was still living. O wretched man that I am. And then we get to Romans 8. And I hear angels singing and people clapping. Maybe the most beautiful chapter in all the Bible. It begins with no condemnation, and ends with no separation. Look at it Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And he closes it by saying, And who or what shall separate us from the love of God? height or death, things present or past, angels, demons, principalities, powers, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. What a powerful statement. We'll group them together for the sake of time, but Romans 9, 10 and 11 talk about how deeply Paul wanted people to see Jesus. How much he wanted them to see the one who had changed his life He wanted others to be saved. He gets very personal. He talks about his neighbors. And if we had a heart for our lost neighbors like Paul had for his, there'd be less lost people in this world. He says things like this. The Jewish people, he says, I bear them record. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He'll say this. My heart's desire and prayer for God to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He'll say this I would wish myself a castaway if it would mean the lost sheep of the house of Israel could be saved. He wanted the people around him saved so desperately. He's still talking about this concept of salvation when you come to Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beg you, brothers, by God's mercy, that you present your bodies. A living sacrifice, the word is latreo, a living act of worship. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the view of your minds, that you may prove what is that good, and acceptable, and perfect will of God. He's still talking about our salvation. But when you get to chapter, to verse 9, we turn our attention to our relationships with each other. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about today. For those of you who'd like to keep score, that was introduction. For those of you nervous, the rest of us not as long. Or maybe it is. You ready? Eight points. Now I really made you nervous, didn't I? (laughs) Number one. He says, Be real. How do we grow a loving church? Look at the verse. Old King James says, let love be without hypocrisy. I believe the NIV says love must be sincere. It's the idea of being real. He says if you want to grow a loving church, if you want to help a church go from being a church that's average like every other church, you must be genuine in your love toward each other. Let love, one translation, one paraphrase says, let love be without a mask. He's saying love doesn't wear a mask. If we're ever going to grow a loving church, we've got to learn to take our mask off. You know what I mean? We come to services sometimes, you know, coats and ties, hats and heels, everything great and wonderful. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. It's good to see you. How are you? I'm fine. On the way down here, we had a knockdown drag out of the car over who was going to, you know, where we're going to have lunch or, or, or who got in the car last or who did what. <laughs> he says, be real. Be sincere. James write it this way. Confess your faults one to another and pray that God may heal you. He's saying we've got to be sincere. We've got to be real. We've got to be genuine. Sometimes we come to church we're not real with each other. Listen, brother. I've got a problem with you. Listen, sister. We need to talk about this. We need to work through this. We've got to love each other. We've got to be real. We've got to be genuine. We can't have this artificial fake realness. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as fake news when it comes to God. He says you be real with each other, be genuine, be sincere, be who you are. One phrase I hate is, I don't like that person, but I love them in the Lord. (laughs) As if you could divorce your human feelings from your spiritual feelings. Look at what he says. Hate what is evil. Cling to, literally be wedded to that which is good. The word sincere, there's an interesting word. In the Greek world, there were a lot of sculptures, a lot of individuals who did, artisans who would make, make sculptures out of, out of marble, 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 not marble, marble, or stone. And I've never done that. Maybe someone here has. But I can just picture myself making one. I'm getting really good at it. I get to the nose and I hit the chisel at the wrong place and the whole nose pops off. I mean, I could just see that happen. And if a guy was making a, 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 a bust of someone and he, he made a mistake like that, what, what dishonest artisans would do is they would take some wax and they would melt the wax on whatever, a groove in the face where there should not have been one or whatever, and they'd fill it in with that wax. A wise art buyer would take that, that piece of art and set it out in the sun and the sun would melt away the wax When he says your love is to be sincere, that's what he's saying. Let it be without wax. Let it be what it is. And look what he says next. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Why does love hate evil? Listen carefully. It's not for political reasons, it's not to get your candidate in office, it's not to get your point of view across. It's not because you're better than somebody else. Love hates evil because evil hurts people and God loves people. And we've got to love people more. The point is we must reject sin without rejecting the sinner. But we've got to move on to number two. He would say be careful of each other's needs. Look at the text. He says be devoted, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's really a a play on the Greek word love there. In fact, this phrase is the only time this phrase is used in the Bible. You, you probably know. You've heard Chuck and others <coughs> preach about it. There are four Greek words for the word love. The word, the word uh, phileo, which is friendship kind of love. The word eros, it never is used in the Bible, but it's a Greek word that's erotic type love. The love we so most, see most often in our world today. There's the third kind of love, the, word, the, the storge kind of love. My dad used to call it Aunt Minnie shortcake kind of love. Aunt Minnie makes good shortcake. As long as the shortcake's there, I love Aunt Minnie. And then there's a the fourth kind of love, and that's agape love. That's the kind of love that God has for us. He says that's the kind of love we're to practice, a brotherly kind of love. Well, how do we love each other as brothers? You know what he's saying? It's a family kind of love. The word here is storge athleo, aflo- storge is brotherly and family love. We understand that, don't we? I mean, we just came out of the holiday season not very long ago. And if your family's like mine when I was growing up, or like my children were when they were growing up, we get in the car and drive to see family, usually at Thanksgiving. The extended family would get together. And you know how it is in a family. You've got that uncle, you know, and he kind of smells funny. And you have this fear he's probably going to ask you for some money. And you really don't want to end up in a room with him by yourself. You've got that aunt, you know. And you know, she can't wait to see you so she can grab you and squeeze you real tight and kiss you. And it's too wet a kiss, okay. I mean, you've got that aunt. Now, if, if you don't understand that illustration, you are that person. <laughs> but you know what your mom and dad said to you on the way? Is Aunt Sue going to be there? Is Uncle George going to be there? Oh, I'm sorry, use George. There's a George here. Is Uncle Bob going to be there? Maybe there's a Bob here. Is Uncle Bob going to be there? You know what they'd say? Yes. And their family. We know what family is. Family is treating each other right even when things aren't always right. And we've got to learn to do that in the church. That's the kind of love he's talking about here. I have a feeling we no longer really understand love. We think we have it figured out, but we think it's one thing, it's another thing, you know? Maybe you heard about the little boy who who wrote on the back of a fifth grade picture, Dear Susie, I love you forever and ever. Love Johnny. P. S. when we break up, can I please have the picture back? That's kind of love we like, isn't it? Love that loves as long as it loves, and then it stops loving. Like the old farmer, you know. His wife died. He didn't like being alone, so he wanted to get remarried. He was a Christian man. He wanted to get remarried. wanted to marry a Christian. About the time he went to the paper to take out the ad, his tractor fell apart and died. Well, being a farmer, a frugal man, he decided I better be cautious here, so he took an ad in the paper. Wanted. One wife. Must have tractor. <laughs> That's what you call a John Deere letter. all I got folks. (laughs) Look at the text. Honor one another above yourselves. One translation says be quick to honor. I worked with a church one time where the leader said never mention anybody in the bulletin by name because somebody else may get their feelings hurt. This verse says mention everybody you can by name. Go out of your way to pay honor. Find reason to pay honor. Look for opportunity to honor people. And honor them above yourself. That means not only am I doing the honoring, but if you're left out, you're also to be honoring the person who's honored. Honor others above yourself. When you have a church family like that, who's genuine in their love, that doesn't wear masks, who's courteous and honors each other, it'll be a growing church. Number three, verse 11. Not lacking in zeal, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Let's kind of group that this way. Be contagious with your enthusiasm. Literally, it says, be on fire for the Lord. Spiritual fervor is what he's talking about here. Super hot for God. Where's our enthusiasm, brethren, in the church today? You might understand this. But it's almost as if when Pat Boone decided he had the gift of the Holy Spirit... That in Churches of Christ, we decided we were not going to show any spirit at all. And folks, that is sinful. Where is our emotion? Where is our worshiping God, not just in truth, but in spirit? Where are we putting our emotion in our worship and in everything that we do in our life? Somebody says, oh, we're not led by the heart. No, we're not, but over 1,000 times in the pages of God's Word, it refers to the heart as a center of what we are spiritually no, it's not a heart religion, but it's not not a heart religion either. On the birthday of the church, the text tells us they were cut to, pricked in the heart. The heart is what was touched. Unless your heart is, not in, is, is, is in what you're doing, you're not really a part of God. He says we are to be on fire for God. You ever know Christians like that, that I have no fire for God at all? I used to preach at a college church. It was fun. You'd have these college students come in every year in the fall. Inevitably, one of the young ladies would call the church office three or four weeks in the semester. I want to schedule the building for a wedding. Oh, okay, good. When are you going to get married? He okay, gave the date. Who are you marrying? I don't know yet. I just know I'm getting married. You know, some people that way they have all the energy, just a bundle of energy. They're ready for whatever. And there's other people who, you know, we're having a gospel meeting and the preacher's pounded on us a lot. The elders have begged us, so I feel obligated to call somebody. So I called my best friend. Hey, listen, the church wants me to call and invite you. We're having a meeting. You wouldn't want to come, would you? What kind of a zeal is that for the Lord? That word enthusiasm is an interesting word. Every once in a while I'm asked to come speak at a place and I'll say, what do you want me to talk about? And they say, just bring some enthusiasm. We need something to fire us up. And it seems like some of the church began to think that enthusiasm means that you introduce some outside element into your worship or into your emotion that is not real, that's not biblical, that's not what God wants. But if it brings our enthusiasm back, that's enough. Listen, that word enthusiasm is a neat word. you know what it means? It means in God. In God. Once upon a time I preached for a church and we had a man by the name of Walter. I'd not been at that church long. I'd made a horrible mistake. Three Sundays straight I told an Alabama-Auburn joke. He was an Auburn fan. He came up on the wrong end of that joke every time. And he left the church. And one of the elders, Brother Jim, came to me and said, Brother Dale, Brother Walters left us. I'm sorry. He said, we need to get him back. I said, okay, what could I do? He said, well, the key is we need to get him involved. Because if we can get him involved, he won't go away if he's doing something. I wasn't very wise then. I don't know that I am now. But now I think what I'd say to him is, brother, what we need is we need to get him to fall in love with the Lord. Because when you're in love with the Lord, they can't do anything to keep you away they could do anything to you and you'd stay. They could beat you with whips or with the rods and you'd stay. They could threaten your family and you'd stay. When you're so wrapped up in God and so in love with God, when you're that deep in love with God, nothing will keep you away from God. You don't have to be noisy to be enthusiastic. You have to be in God. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15, God says a lukewarm Christian makes me nauseous, makes me want to spit you out. Not lacking in zeal, he says here. And watch this phrase, serving the Lord. A fellow went, once, went, once went to that lady that the world calls Mother Teresa and said, how do you keep your joy in Calcutta? In the dirtiest, most depressed, devastated part of the world. How do you keep your joy there? And her answer was classic and classy and one I believe every Christian needs to hear. She said we do our work for the Lord and we do our work with the Lord and we do our work to the Lord. And folks, if we can begin to develop that mentality, I don't know who it is here that's in charge of benevolence. But bless your heart, people lie to you. It's hard, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to become cynical. Elders, I know it's sometimes discouraging and difficult because all you hear are the problems and the difficulties that you face. I don't know who it is here that teaches the fifth grade boys Bible class, but God bless you. They put you in there 20 years ago and locked the door and threw away the key, and you're still (laughs) stuck there. And you don't think you're ever going to get out. Maybe you think you're that third grade teacher, and you think someday the student's going to host me up on their shoulders and carry me around the class and sing my praises. Any of those elements we've just talked about. It's easy to quit as long as it's human love, and love involved. But if we can ever get the kind of love that we're talking about in it, we can say, Lord, I'm really doing this for you. Lord, I know they're difficult to deal with, but I'm really doing this for you. Lord, I know they spat on me, but I'm really doing this for you. Lord, I know they don't appreciate it, but Lord, I'm really doing this for you. Really, it's a commentary on Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do whatever you do, do it heartily or with all your heart, as unto the Lord, knowing that the Lord you receive reward. Our work is to the Lord. We got to move quickly. I'm way over time. Number four, verse twelve. He says, "Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer." If you're going to grow a loving church, you need to be positive, patient, and prayerful. Let's take them one at a time, but quickly. Number one, joyful in hope. Christians have more reason to be hopeful than anybody in the world. It's not a Pollyanna positivity. It's something real. In fact, look at Romans chapter 8 real quickly. He gives us seven reasons why Christians ought to be the most hopeful people in the world. Number one, we have no condemnation. Our guilt has been taken away. We already talked about that. Number two, verse two, through the law of Christ. through. Uh, Through Christ, the law of the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. I'm set free. I'm not going to die. Number three, verse 26. In this same way, the Spirit helps us in our infirmities, our weaknesses. God helps me even when I don't know what to pray. That's the reason to be hopeful. Number four, verse 28. And we know that all things work for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. That verse is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It doesn't say that everything that happens to a Christian is good. But it does say that God can take the bad in your life and use it for His purpose. Number five. And what shall we say to this? Verse 31. What shall we say in response to this? If God be for us, who can be against us? My dad used to say, God plus one always equals a majority. Number six, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up also for us, shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God loved you enough to take care of the biggest problem of your life, your problems in, don't you think he cares enough about you to take care of all the little stuff? And number seven, nothing can separate us from God's love. There's a reason to be hopeful. Number two, he says be patient in affliction. Flip back another page of your Bible to chapter 5 of Romans. And real quick, look at verses 3 through 5. And not only so, but we rejoice in our tribulation because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character produces hope. The Bible says that we can be confident that the plan of God and the power of God are greater than the problems of the present We can be patient because we know that God is using even the difficulties of our life to strengthen us for Him. And then He says, be prayerful. And what I've learned is that when my prayer life isn't what it should be, it becomes very easy for me to be irritable irritable with other people. Be faithful in prayer. I think Paul may have been an example of this. You know the first time we meet Paul? It's in Acts chapter 7. And they're stoning Stephen because Stephen has said God loves everybody. and The Jewish people didn't like that. And so they started picking pick up rocks and throw them at Stephen. And maybe somebody here that's a great theologian can help me understand this. The text says they took their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's eventually going to be Paul. I don't know if they put the coats at Saul's feet because he was a young man and he didn't need to dirty his hands with murder. Or if they put the coats at his feet because Paul was in charge of the group. You know, he says in Galatians, I excel all my peers. And he was looking over the whole affair. But I do know this, as they stoned Stephen, Stephen prayed the same prayer that God, that Christ prayed on the cross. Lord, do not hold this charge of their offense. Lord, forgive them. Do not hold this against them. He was praying for the people that were persecuting him. Maybe Paul's answer to the very prayer that was being prayed. Be faithful in prayer. Point number five, very quickly, verse 13. Share with God's people in need. Practice hospitality. Open your hearts and your homes to others. I heard about a church that decided they'd take this concept, this idea of fellowship very seriously. Of helping people very seriously. And they handed out to every member a three-by-five card and a pen. And they said, on one side of the card, "Won't you write down anything that you have you'd be willing to share with people. So we wrote down things like, you know, I've got an old car I'm not using anymore. I've got extra dishes. I've got some furniture and storage. I've got uh, all sorts of things. On the other side, they said, "Well, you write down anything you can do, you'd be willing to do for people. Somebody wrote down, I can cook for people. Somebody else wrote down, I'd be happy to help people with their taxes. I'm an accountant. Somebody said, I'd be happy to help people with their health concerns. Somebody wrote, I'd be happy to help people with legal issues. I'm a lawyer. Just anything you could do that would help other people. They took the idea of helping each other seriously. They practiced hospitality. They got so busy they had to hire eventually a guy they called the full-time minister of helps because the church took serious this idea of helping each other. Number six, the next step toward growing a loving church. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. The sixth step is do not speak evil or negative of a brother. Do Christians ever persecute Christians? Let me ask it another way. Do brothers ever persecute brothers? I can answer that. I had two older brothers growing up. One immediately close to me was Carrie. Carrie loved to wrestle. We used to watch Saturday Night Wrestling down here in Birmingham. At the Boutwell Auditorium. Oto Moto and Bearcat Brown and Andre, Andre the Giant. We used to watch those guys. Man, we loved it. And anytime Mom and Dad would leave the house for go out on a Bible study or a visitation to the hospital or some other activity and we were old enough to leave by ourselves so they thought we were old enough to leave by ourselves at home. No sooner would the door close and Carrie would say, Dale, let's wrestle. And I'd say, Carrie, I don't want to wrestle, you'll beat me up. And he'd say, if you don't wrestle me, I'll beat you up. (laughs) Do brothers ever persecute brothers? Indeed, they do. I love the quote from George Washington Carver. I will never allow another man to belittle me by making me hate him. I can't control what other people say about me, how they treat me, what they say about my family. But I can control how I respond to other people. we got to move. Number seven. Rejoice with those who rejoice, verse 15, and weep with those who weep. Be sympathetic toward each other's feelings. You know, I've found it's easier to weep with those who weep sometimes than to rejoice with those who Rejoice. I mean they got the promotion and you got the pink slip. They got the recognition and you got looked over. They got the grandbaby and you got the grand dog. <laughs> he says, rejoice when people, when good things happen in people's lives. And when they're hurting, you be alongside them to hurt with them. And finally, everybody's favorite word in the sermon. Finally, verse 16. He says, Avoid pride and partiality. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to condescend or associate with people of low estate or low position. Do not be conceited. When we realize that every person we meet on this earth has a soul. The church will grow. Because instead of some tattooed up person with weird hair, instead of some individual with issues... Instead of some mean co-worker or mean student at school that bullies me, I will see them as a soul in need of the grace of God. And I'll begin to work with them from that aspect instead of the other. Every person you see with deviant behavior, they're that way because they have a problem with sin and because they're looking for something that will answer the questions of their life and they've not found it yet. Many of you know my dad preached at Woodline, Robot Parkway for 43 years. And while he probably would not like me saying this, he was a large part of the growth of that church. And over those 43 years, I averaged baptizing one person every seven days. That's amazing to think about. We're out knocking doors, it seemed like, every, Friday, every Saturday and Sunday, all year long, it seemed like to me. I dreaded it. Not because I didn't like people. I hated dogs. I was scared to death of dogs. I used to do everything I could with those little three-by-five cards, the home Bible study, John Hurt home Bible study cards. I'd put them in the car windows, in mailboxes. I know it's illegal now. I'd throw them into fire grates, whatever I could to get rid of them. I'm sorry, I'm just being honest with you about that. I'll never forget the Saturday that Dad was signing team, and he said, his son, he looked at me. You're going with me today. And I knew what that meant. That meant we'd be knocking on every door we came to. I remember the house we walked up to. Over in Terrence City, it was a white, just a white old house. Had a white picket fence that at one time maybe denoted a young family lived there, but it was in disrepair. We walked through where the gate had been. It looked like nobody lived there. The yard wasn't cut, or beer cans thrown in the yard. And We walked up, the door wasn't even on those hinges. It was kind of sitting off the side. In my mind, I had one thought. There's nobody here. No dogs. That's good, we can stay here all day long. They had kind of rapped on where the door had been. Anybody home? Nobody answered. After a few minutes, we we'll walked back down the sidewalk, back through where the fence had been, and we're walking toward the next house. I spotted them before Dad did, but out behind that house, there were a bunch of old guys working on their Harleys, on their motorcycles, but Dad saw them, and sure enough, we walked back around, went back up to the garage, the lean-to of the house where they were working on the motorcycles, and I'm convinced it was the biggest one of the group. Dad walked up to him and said, my name is Jerry Jenkins, and he smiled that Jerry Jenkins smile. I'm for the Woodline Church of Christ. We're out today inviting people to study the Bible. Would you like to study the Bible with us? And my nine-year-old mind was thinking, thinking, Jerry A. Jenkins, born January the 15th, 1936. <laughs> Somebody's got to write the obituary. He's going to die. <laughs> the guy looked at that kind of sternly after a minute or so said, Yeah, my mama used to read me the Bible when I was a child. I'll take your study. He signed up, went through the nine lesson John Hurt series. When it's over, Dad took him his signed certificate. He said, Would you like to see the Joe Miller film strips? Been a while. He said, Yes. And then the fourth one, Dad asked that question you always ask is there any reason I should not baptize you into Jesus Christ this very night for the forgiveness of your sins that you can be a simple New Testament Christian? The man said he wanted to be a Christian. Wednesday night he walked in the back door. He looked rough, cut off blue jean jacket, long hair, dirty. I remember seeing him, Keith and Timmy and I, the three of us were sitting on the second row. I know we were sitting on the second row because mom and dad had a rule, you can sit anywhere in the church, but as long as it's in front of us and they sat on the third row. He came back the next week and the next week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. He kept coming back. It seemed the more he came, the more he cleaned up. He got a little nicer looking. He cut his hair. Eventually got a burr cut. It seemed like the shorter his hair got, the closer he got to the front of the building. And then one Wednesday night, he wasn't there. And his absence that night was as conspicuous as his presence had been the first time he walked in the building. About the third song that evening. The back doors opened, and then he walked. Kind of sloughing in behind him was a guy that looked as rough as he had looked the first time he'd come in that building. And after a few weeks, that young man was baptized. And then another and another... And another, I don't know how many of them which became Christians. But here's why. Because dad cared more about their soul than their parents. Because he avoided pride and partiality. Because he determined, I'm not going to decide who has a right to hear the gospel of Christ. Everybody needs to hear it. Amen. And if we want to grow loving churches, we've got to reach out for people around us. Well, that's all I got. Sorry, I went so long. Back home, they called me Pharaoh, because I won't let God's people go. <laughs> I heard about a guy that was preaching here in Alabama, and he'd gone on quite a while, and the guy got up and started walking out of the building, and he stopped and he said, "Where are you going?" The guy said, "I'm going to get a haircut." He said, "A haircut. Why didn't you think of that before you got here?" He said, "I didn't need one then. <laughs> I'm thankful for how you've listened today. You've been very gracious and I appreciate that. Today, if there's someone here that's not a Christian, I invite you to be a part of the greatest thing that's ever existed on this earth. That is a body of Christ. I invite you to have your sins forgiven by the grace of God. Will you obey His word? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins based upon your belief and confession and your desire to not let sin dominate your life anymore. And today, if you're a child of God and you've left them, don't let anything stand in the way of you and God. Come back home right now while we stand to see.